Elder Malcolm S. Jepson of the 70 has just spoken to us, and President Benson has indicated that I should now address you. The Holy Bible is an inspiration to me. This book has inspired more the minds of men and has motivated the readers to live the commandments of God and to love one another than almost any other. It is printed in greater quantities, is translated into more languages, and has touched more human hearts than any other volume. Particularly do I enjoy reading from the book of Genesis, the account describing the creation of the world. Ponder the power of that culminating declaration, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them, and God blessed them. Joy turns to sadness as we learn of Abel's tragic death at the hand of his brother Cain. Chapters of counsel, lessons from living and for living, guidance from God are found in one brief verse, and I quote, And the Lord said unto Cain, Where? is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? These two significant questions are asked, then answered, in themes taught throughout the scripture. One such example is found in the life of Joseph and his brothers. We will recall that Joseph was especially loved by his father. And being loved by the father Jacob occasioned bitterness and jealousy on the part of his brothers. There followed the plot to slay him, which eventually placed Joseph in a pit without food, without water to sustain life. Upon the arrival of a passing caravan of merchants, Joseph's brothers determined to sell him rather than to leave him to die. Twenty pieces of silver extricated Joseph from the pit and placed him eventually in the house of Potiphar in the land of Egypt. There Joseph prospered, for the Lord was with Joseph. And after the years of plenty, there followed the years of famine. And in the midst of the latter period, when the brothers of Joseph came to Egypt to buy corn, they were blessed by this favored man in Egypt, even their own brother. Joseph could have dealt harshly with his brethren for the callous and cruel treatment he had earlier received from them. However, he was kind and gracious to his brethren and won their favor and support with these words and actions. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Moreover, Joseph kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. They had found their brother, and Joseph in very deed was his brother's keeper. In the touching account of the Good Samaritan, Jesus teaches vividly the interpretation of the lesson, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Answered effectively is the haunting question, 
am I my brother's keeper? An entire vista of opportunity is unfolded to our view when we contemplate the magnitude of King Benjamin's admonition recorded in the Book of Mormon. When ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Just last week, the First Presidency and the Council of the Twelve were provided the opportunity to view the new church history exhibit situated in the museum just west of Temple Square. I love the replica of the Fourth Ward Assembly Rooms, one of the original wards in the valley. I noted with keen interest the lighted map which plotted the journey of the pioneers from place to place, from Nauvoo to the valley. However, my heart was truly touched when I gazed at an actual handcart displayed in a prominent place of honor. The handcart communicated to me a silent but eloquent account of its long and momentous journey. Let us for a moment, you and I, join Captain Edward Martin and the handcart company he led. While we'll not feel the pangs of hunger which they felt, nor experience the bitter cold that penetrated their weary bodies, we will emerge from our visit with a better appreciation of hardship borne, courage demonstrated, and faith fulfilled. We will witness with tear-filled eyes a dramatic answer to the question, Am I my brother's keeper? The handcarts moved on November 3rd and reached the river filled with floating ice. To cross would require more courage, more fortitude, it seemed, that human nature could possibly muster. Women shrank back and grown men wept. Some pushed through, but others were unequal to the ordeal. Three 18-year-old boys belonging to the relief party came to the rescue and, to the astonishment of all who saw, carried nearly every member of that ill-fated handcart company across the snow and ice-bound stream. The strain was so terrible, the exposure so great, that later all the boys died from the effects of this rescue. When President Brigham Young heard of the heroic act, he wept like a child and declared publicly, That act alone will ensure C. Allen Huntington, George W. Grant, and David P. Kimball an everlasting salvation in the celestial kingdom of God, worlds without end. Our service may not be so dramatic, but we can bolster human spirits clothe cold bodies, feed hungry people, comfort grieving hearts, and lift to new heights precious souls. Junius Burt of Salt Lake City, a longtime worker in the streets department, related a touching and inspirational experience. His nephew is here tonight. He declared that on a cold winter morning the street cleaning crew of which he was a member was removing large chunks of ice from the gutters in Salt Lake City. The regular crew was assisted by temporary laborers who desperately needed the work. One such wore only a lightweight sweater and was suffering from the cold. A slender man with a well-groomed beard stopped by the crew and asked the worker, You need more than that sweater on a day like this. Where is your coat? The man replied that he had no coat to wear. 
The visitor then removed his own overcoat, handed it to the man, and said, This coat is yours. It is heavy wool and will keep you warm. I just worked across the street. The street was South Temple. The Good Samaritan who walked into the church administration building to his daily work and without his coat was President George Albert Smith of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. His selfless act of generosity revealed his tender heart. Surely he was his brother's keeper. In December of 1989, the beautiful and long-awaited Las Vegas temple was dedicated in inspiring sessions which continued for three days. The messages and the music and the dedicatory services lifted each heart heavenward and prompted the listener to keep the commandments of God and to emulate the example of righteous living taught by Jesus of Nazareth. Thoughts of self yielded to consideration for others. One sermon stressed the injunction of the Lord as recorded in Matthew. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. After the session during which this passage of Scripture had been presented, a handwritten letter, carefully tucked away in a sealed envelope, was handed to me by an usher. May I share with you the contents of this touching letter? Dear President Monson, my husband and I feel the completion and dedication of this beautiful Las Vegas temple is the finest gift we could receive during this sacred season. Temples are such a sweet gift to all the world, and as you spoke of righteous saints who are worthy to obtain the blessing of the Lord's house but lack the financial means to attend a temple, our hearts were so touched. President Monson, there must be a family somewhere who needs to attend the temple, because as my dear companion and I spoke of our great joy during this special Christmas season, we both commented as to how any store-bought gift would pale in comparison to what we have received in these dedicatory services. Instead of spending our budgeted Christmas funds for some gift, from a local store, we would like to give you this $500 to help some family waiting to be endowed and sealed for eternity. We appreciate your assisting us in our gifts to each other this year. Sincerely, the letter was unsigned. The giver remains anonymous. Perhaps today this brother may be viewing this session of General Conference. If so, he may be pleased to learn that this gift has made it possible for a worthy family from the Via Real district of the Portugal Porto Mission to journey to the temple and receive their precious temple blessings. To the unknown givers of this priceless gift, I extend my thanks for being your brother's keeper. I love and have that inner feeling that your Christmas season was marked by joy and filled with peace. You know, brethren, 
We have no way of knowing when our privilege to extend a helping hand will unfold before us. The road to Jericho, each one of us travels, bears no name, and the weary traveler who needs our help may be one unknown to us. Altogether too frequently, the recipient of kindness shown fails to express his feelings, and we are deprived of a glimpse of greatness and a touch of tenderness that motivates us to go and do likewise. Genuine gratitude was expressed by the writer of a letter received recently at the office of the First Presidency. No return address was shown, but the letter was posted from Portland, Oregon. It simply said to the office of the First Presidency, and the letter proceeded. Salt Lake City showed me Christian hospitality once during my wandering years. On a cross-country journey by bus to California, I stepped down in the terminal at Salt Lake City, sick and trembling from aggravated loss of sleep caused by a lack of necessary medication. In my headlong flight from a bad situation in Boston, I had completely forgotten my supply. In the Temple Square Hotel restaurant, I sat dejectedly, cheekbones propped on fists, staring at a cup of coffee I really didn't want. Out of the corner of my eye, however, I saw a couple approach my table. Are you all right, young man? The woman asked. I raised up crying and a bit shaken, related my story and the predicament I was in. He continues, they listened carefully and patiently to my nearly incoherent ramblings, and then they took charge. They must have been prominent citizens. They spoke with the restaurant manager, then told me I could have all I wanted to eat there for five days. They took me next door to the hotel desk and got me a room for five days. Then they drove me to a clinic and saw that I was provided with the medications I needed truly my basic lifeline to sanity and comfort. While I was recuperating and building my strength, I made it a point to attend the daily tabernacle organ recitals. The celestial voicing of that instrument from the faintest intonation to the mighty full organ is the most sublime sonority of my acquaintance. I have acquired albums and tapes of the tabernacle organ and the choir which I can rely upon any time to soothe and buttress a sagging spirit. On my last day at the hotel, before I resumed my journey, I turned in my key, and there was a message for me from that couple. It said simply, Repay us by showing gentle kindness to some other troubled soul along your way. That was my habit but I determined to be more keenly on the lookout for someone who needed a lift in life. And then he concluded, I wish you well. I don't know if these are indeed the latter days spoken of in Scripture, but I do know that two members of your Church were saints to me in my desperate hours of need. I thought you might just like to know. What a touching account! There comes to mind the experience of Jesus when ten lepers were cleansed, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet. And Jesus said unto him, Arise, go thy way, 
thy faith hath made thee whole. The desire to help another, the quest for the lost sheep, may not always yield success at once. On occasion, progress is slow, even indiscernible. Such was the experience of my lifelong friend, Gil Warner of Salt Lake City. He was serving as a newly called bishop when Douglas, a member of his ward, transgressed and was deprived of his church membership. Father was saddened. Mother was devastated. Douglas soon thereafter moved from the state. The years hurried by, but Bishop Warner, now a member of a high council, never ceased to wonder what had become of Douglas. In 1975, I attended the State Conference of the Parley Stake, having with me Jean Cook, a new general authority. And there we held a priesthood leadership meeting early on the Sunday morning. I spoke of the Church discipline system and the need to labor earnestly and lovingly to rescue any who had strayed. Gil Warner raised his hand and asked to speak, and then outlined the story of Douglas. He concluded with the question, who has the responsibility to work with Douglas and bring him back to church membership? Gill advised me later that my response to his question was direct and given without hesitation. I said, It is your responsibility, Gill, for you were his bishop, and he knew you cared. Unbeknownst to Gill Warner, Douglas's mother had the previous week fasted and prayed that a man would be raised up to help save her son. Gill discovered this when he felt prompted to call her and report his determination to be of help. Thus Gill began his odyssey of redemption. Douglas was contacted by him. Old times, happy times were remembered. Testimony was expressed, love was conveyed, and confidence instilled. The pace was excruciatingly slow. Discouragement, discouragement frequently entered the scene. But step by step, Douglas made headway. At long last, prayers were answered, efforts rewarded, and victory attained. Douglas was approved for baptism. The baptismal date was set, family members gathered, and former Bishop Gil Warner flew to Seattle for the occasion. Can we appreciate the supreme joy felt by Bishop Warner as he, dressed in white, stood with Douglas in water waist-deep and, raising his right arm to the square, repeated those sacred words, Having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that was lost was found. A 26-year mission, marked by love and pursued with determination, had been successfully completed. Gil Warner said to me, This was one of the greatest days of my life. I know the joy promised by the Lord when He declared, And if it so be that you should labor all your days, and bring save it be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with Him, in the kingdom of my Father. Were Gil Warner today, as he said to Adam's son long ago, 
heard the word of the Lord. Where is Douglas, thy brother? Bishop Warner could reply, I am my brother's keeper, Lord. Behold, Douglas, thy son. May all of us, brethren, who hold the priesthood of God, demonstrate by our lives that we are our brother's keepers, is my sincere prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. We shall now be pleased to hear from President Gordon B. Hinckley, First Counselor in the First Presidency. Before President Hinckley speaks, we remind you that the CBS Tabernacle Choir broadcast will be from 9.30 to 10 a.m. tomorrow morning. Those desiring to attend this broadcast and the Sunday morning session which follows must be in their seats before 9.15 a.m. Listen carefully, brethren. Because Daylight Saving Time begins at 2 a.m. tomorrow morning, we encourage you to move your clocks ahead one hour before you retire this evening. As you leave this priesthood meeting tonight, we ask you to obey traffic rules, to use caution, and to be courteous in driving. We express our gratitude to the Combined Institute Men's Choir for the beautiful music this evening. Following President Hinckley's closing remarks, the choir will sing, Beautiful Savior, and the benediction will be offered by Elder Monty J. Bruff of the Seventy. President Hinckley. I pray for the influence of the Holy Spirit as I discuss with you a most sacred subject, a subject that I hope will have special significance to those of you who may be investigating the Church. On July 20, 1969, astronauts landed on the Moon, a planet located some 239,000 miles from the Earth. Millions of people the world over witnessed this historic event on television and stared in amazement as the lunar module came to rest on the Moon's surface. All were thrilled when Neil Armstrong exited from the spacecraft and announced, One small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. The press coverage of this monumental achievement was broad. It occupied headlines and was the subject of feature stories for many days. After all, the moon landing had opened new frontiers of space travel, revealed new knowledge about the universe, and represented a major investment of human resources. Some reporters declared that the moon landing was the greatest event in the history of mankind since the resurrection of Christ. I do stand in awe of the recent developments in space technology. My mind does not comprehend even a fraction of the miracles wrought by knowledgeable men of the world who have probed the universe. However, I take issue with those who believe that the placement of men upon the moon is the greatest occurrence of the last 2,000 years. I do so because I know of an event wherein the Creator of the universe Himself came to earth in answer to an obscure boy's humble prayer and revealed pure theology. Greatness is measured by men in many ways. It is generally equated with size, cost, quantity, and position. God, however, has a better way. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than man's ways. In God's eyes, greatness is equated with light, truth, goodness, and service. We are taught that eternal life is the greatest of all the gifts of God, and that eternal life is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Therefore, it is concluded that anyone who would introduce the only true God to mankind and unwrap the gift of eternal life, making it available to all would be a partaker of greatness and be associated with great events. The obscure young man of whom I speak, who introduced the true and living God to a benighted world, was not sponsored by an organization or trained by a group of professionals. He was no prophet, nor was he a prophet's son. But like many who have been called in times past to perform a holy work, he was a common farm boy. He was the product of a God-fearing family a family that thirsted after righteousness and exercised a simple but deep faith in the Lord. His school was the home, his teachers were loving parents, and his textbook was the Holy Bible. Yet at the tender age of fourteen he demonstrated a type of faith which had power to thrust him into the presence of deity. There were no cameras trained upon him when he stepped into that grove of trees in Upper State New York. There were no cheering throngs or support personnel to provide him encouragement, nor were there newspaper reporters on hand to describe his actions. He knelt alone under the gaze of his Heavenly Father and offered up the sincere desires of his heart with perfect confidence that his voice would be heard. He was unaware of the muted applause of unseen multitudes who had waited so patiently for the dawning of a new day and the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His investment in working the miracle was not money, machines, manpower, or even the trappings of science. His was an investment of living faith and an indomitable will. Joseph Smith's prayer and first vision in 1820 were no small things, even though they began as one small step for a young man. Over the years they have proven to be one giant leap for mankind, for that's, that act of supreme faith ended a long night of spiritual darkness, opened up a flood of unadulterated truths, and ushered in the dispensation of the fullness of times. We are told that the spin-off effects of the Moon mission were many. Such benefits are reflected in all the materials about us. However, the consequences of Joseph Smith's first vocal prayer and his probe into the unknown are infinitely greater and should be pondered seriously by all who are interested in things as they really are and of things as they really will be. Joseph did not emerge from the grove with lunar rocks in his pocket or with moon dust on his shoes. He emerged with a changed countenance and with a gold mine of truth lodged in his mind and heart. Joseph learned that there are no winners in wars of words or tumults of opinion as regarding religious matters. Such contention plays into the hands of Satan because he is the father of contention. Moreover, Joseph verified the fact that critical issues pertaining to the Spirit cannot be settled alone by an appeal to the Bible. 
so long as teachers of religion understand the same passage of Scripture so differently. Joseph learned of the power of some actual being from the unseen world, which bound his tongue and enveloped him in thick darkness as he began to pray. This power was exerted by the evil one, who viewed Joseph Smith as a threat to his realm of sin and error. Few men have disturbed and annoyed the adversary more than Joseph. Few have felt the combined powers of darkness more than he. And few have triumphed over Satan more nobly. Joseph learned what Moses had learned years before about Satan's darkness and nothingness as compared with the light and liberty associated with God. Said Joseph, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head above the brightness of the sun which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. Light and truth do forsake the evil one. The powers of darkness do flee before the powers of light, just as the night runs from the dawn. Joseph learned that he was made in the image of God exactly as the scriptures attest. In his own words, When the light rested upon me, I saw two personages whose brightness and glory defy all description standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son, hear him. In a matter of only a few moments, the damning myth of an impersonal, uncaring, and incomprehensible God was dispelled. The true nature of a Father in heaven, the Father of our spirits, was revealed in company with His beloved Son, even Jesus Christ, He who had atoned for the sins of man. As stated by one, one minute's instruction from personages clothed with the glory of God coming down from the eternal worlds is worth more than all the volumes that were ever written by uninspired men. Joseph learned that none of the churches of the day were right and that he should not join any of them. He recounts, My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak than I asked the personages who stood above me in the light which of all the sects was right and which I should join. I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. This pronouncement may have troubled Joseph at first, because members of his family had affiliated with a specific faith, and he himself had leanings toward another. But God had spoken, and who was he to dispute? Joseph learned why he must not align himself with an existing church. His words are, The personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, that those professors were all corrupt, that they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Having seen what he had seen and having heard what he had heard, How could he possibly join a sect unacceptable to the Almighty? Perhaps some of the professors were humble followers of Christ. Nevertheless, they were led that in many instances they did err because they were taught by the precepts of men.
Perhaps some honest efforts were being made by a few, but whatever was being done was insufficient to teach any man the right way. Joseph learned that the testimony of James was true, that a man who lacked wisdom might ask of God and obtain and not be upbraided. He also learned that a soul in the early 19th century was just as precious unto God as a soul in Moses' time or in the meridian of time, else why would the Lord appear? Soon thereafter, Joseph learned that God had a work for him to do and that his name should be made known among all nations, kindreds, and tongues. Such prophecy has been fulfilled. As the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has been established and as the fullness of the gospel has been preached in all the world. Yes, it started all so quietly, so simply, and so very wonderfully. A believing boy took one small step and prayed. A loving Father in Heaven listened and responded. What has resulted is rightfully referred to as one giant leap for mankind. All the towers ever built and all the spaceships ever launched pale in comparison with Joseph Smith's first vision. Though men fly higher and higher into the heavens, they will not find God nor see His face unless they humble themselves, pray, and heed the truths revealed through the prophet of the Restoration. Some have foolishly said, Take away Joseph Smith and his prayer in the grove and the first vision, and we can accept your message. Such people would have us bury the treasure of saving truths already cited and many more and turn our backs to the most important event that has taken place in all world history from the day of Christ's ministry to the glorious hour it occurred. Joseph Smith lived great and died great in the eyes of God. He's done more save Jesus only for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that ever lived in it. His prayer was one small step for a young man, but one giant leap for mankind. It proved that there isn't a thing that man cannot do if he has the faith, trusts in the Lord, and if he takes one small step at a time. Yes, praise to the man who communed with Jehovah and who was instrumental in translating the Book of Mormon, restoring the holy priesthood, organizing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and revealing the fullness of the gospel. I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet, for the fruits of his labors are sweet and abiding, and the Holy Spirit has borne witness to my soul. I feel honored to blend my voice with the chorus of millions who testify of His greatness and divine calling. I also know that the Lord God doth work by means to bring about His great and eternal purposes, and by very small means the Lord doth confound the wise and bringeth about the salvation of many souls. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. As I think of the blessings God has given us and the many beauties of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
I am aware that along the way we are asked to make certain contributions in return—contributions of time or of money or of other resources. These are all valued and all necessary, but they do not constitute our full offering to God. Ultimately, what our Father in Heaven will require of us is more than a contribution. It is a total commitment, a complete devotion, all that we are and all that we can be. Please understand that I do not speak only of a commitment to the Church and its activities, although that is always, always needs to be strengthened. No, I speak more specifically of a commitment that is shown in our individual behavior in our personal integrity, in our loyalty to home and family and community, as well as to the Church. Of course, all these loyalties are interrelated and closely linked because it is the teaching and example of the Lord Jesus Christ that shapes our behavior and forms our character in all areas of our life, personally within the home, in our professions and community life, as well as in our devotion to the Church that bears His name. If we can pattern our life after the Master and take His teachings and example as the supreme pattern for our own, we will not find it difficult to be consistent and loyal in every walk of life. For we will be committed to a single sacred standard of conduct and belief. Whether at home or in the marketplace, whether at school or long after school is behind us, whether we are acting totally alone or in concert with a host of other people, our course will be clear and our standards will be obvious. We will have determined, as the Prophet Alma said, to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in, even until death. This loyalty obviously includes support of the institutional Church. But one of the purposes of that Church is to alter and improve the way we live, every other aspect of our life, as well wherever we are and in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, even until death, as Alma said. Let me recall briefly just one of those magnificent examples from Scripture where three relatively young people stood by their principles and held to their integrity, even though it seemed apparent that to do so would cost them their lives. Approximately 586 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against the city of Jerusalem and conquered it. So impressed was he with the qualities and learning of the children of Israel 
that he had several of them brought to the king's court. Trouble came to the Israelites the day Nebuchadnezzar made a golden idol and commanded all in the province of Babylon to worship it, a command the three young Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, quietly refused. The king was full of rage and fury and demanded that they be brought before him. He informed them that if they did not fall down before the golden image at the appointed moment, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Then, with some self-satisfaction, he asked, And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? The three young men responded courteously but without hesitation. If it be so, they said, that you threaten us with death, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of of thy hand, O King. But if not, If whatever reason he chooses not to save us from the fire, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was more furious than ever and ordered that one of the furnaces be heated to seven times its normal temperature. Then he commanded that these three valiant young men be thrown fully clothed into the midst of the fire. Indeed, the king was so insistent and the flames so hot that the soldiers who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell dead from the heat of the furnace as they cast their captives forward. Then transpired one of those great miracles to which the faithful are entitled according to the will of God. These three young men stood and walked about calmly in the midst of the furnace and were not burned. Indeed, when they were later called out of the furnace by the astonished king himself, their clothing was untarnished, their skin was free from any burn, and not a hair of their head was singed. Not even the smell of smoke had come upon these courageous, committed young men. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, said the king, who hath delivered his servants and trusted in him who yielded their bodies that they might not serve or worship any god except their own god. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The ability to stand by one's principles to live with integrity and faith according to one's belief. That is what matters. That is the difference between a contribution and a commitment. 
That devotion to true principle in our individual lives, in our homes and families, and in all places that we meet and influence other people, that devotion is what God is ultimately requesting of us. I recall some years ago our late and beloved colleague, Uh, President Stephen L. Richards, giving a university address entitled, Tried and Not Found Wanting. He spoke of people in our day, including young people in our day, who must be able to withstand the various tests of faithfulness and loyalty that life puts to all of us from time to time. None of his examples was so dramatic as being cast into a fiery furnace, but the integrity involved was the same, and so was the need for commitment to high principle. He said, How do we feel about honor and integrity? What relation to polite Lying, or what reaction to polite lying to facilitate easy social relationships? How much tolerance have we for either suppression or misrepresentation of facts to promote business advantage? Do we accept without compunction the old adage that's all fair in love and war and politics and college athletics? How sacred do we regard the good name of another? Do we pass on spicy bits of entertaining conversation, repeating humors and stories which have not been submitted to the test of truth? And in the same vein, uh, President Spencer W. Kimball wrote this. I may not be able to eliminate pornographic trash, but my family and I need not buy or view it. I may not be able to close disreputable businesses, but I can stay away from areas of questioned honor and ill repute. I may not be able to greatly reduce the divorces of the land or save all broken homes and frustrated children, but I can keep my own home a congenial one, my marriage happy, my home a haven, and my children well-adjusted. I may not be able to stop the growing claims to freedom from laws based on morals or change all opinions regarding looseness in sex and growing perversions, but I can guarantee devotion to all high ideals and standards in my own home, and I can work toward giving my own family a happy, interdependent spiritual life. I may not be able to stop all graft and dishonesty in high places, but I myself can be honest and upright, full of integrity, and true honor. These are some of the routine but crucial tests in our day in which we must be willing to stand true and with integrity and honor. 
Indeed, even in polite social situations, we must be willing to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in, even until death. Please permit me to close by stressing uh, one place in society where that strength and commitment must be shown if we are to survive as a nation, as a people, or even as a fully successful Church. We simply must have love and integrity and strong principles in our homes. We must have an abiding commitment to marriage and children and morality. We must succeed where su success counts most for the next generation. Surely that home is strongest and most beautiful, in which we find each person sensitive to the feelings of the others, striving to serve others, striving to live at home the principles we demonstrate in more public settings. We need to try harder to live the gospel in our family circles. Our homes deserve our most faithful commitments. A child has the right to feel that his, in his home he is safe and there he has a place of protection from the dangers and evils of the outside world. Family unity and integrity are necessary to supply this need. A child needs parents who are happy in their relationship to each other, who are working happily, happily toward the fulfillment of ideal family living, who love their children with a sincere and unselfish love, and who are committed to the family's success. President uh, N. Eldon Tanner said, <clears throat> Just imagine the, the reversal that would take place if full integrity were to rule in family life. There would be complete fidelity. Husbands would be faithful to wives and wives to husbands. There would be no living in adulterous relationships in lieu of marriage. Homes would abound in love. Children and parents would have respect for one another. How else will our children come to, total, to, to value total honesty and integrity? A successful life, the good life, the righteous Christian life, requires something more than a contribution, though every contribution is valuable. Ultimately, it requires commitment, whole soul, deeply held, eternally cherished commitment to the principles we know to be true in the commandments God has given. We need such loyalty to the Church, but that most immediately be, must immediately be interpreted as a loyalty in our personal habits and behavior, 
integrity in the wider community and marketplace, and for the future's sake, devotion and character in our marriages and homes and families. If we will be true and faithful to our principles, committed to a life of honesty and integrity, then no king or contest or fiery furnace will be able to compromise us. For the success of the kingdom of God on earth, may we stand as witnesses for him at all times and in all things and in all places that we may be in even until death. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters everywhere. During the Galilean ministry of our Lord and Savior, the disciples came to him, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye become converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoso therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Recently, as I read the daily newspaper, my thoughts turned to this passage and the firm candor of the Savior's declaration. In one column of the newspaper, I read of a custody battle between the mother and father of a child. Accusations were made, threats hurled, and anger displayed as parents moved here and there on the international scene with the child spirited away one continent to another. A second story told of a 12-year-old lad who was beaten and set on fire because he refused a neighborhood bully's order to take drugs. Hospitalized, his condition remains critical. Still a third report told of a father's sexual molestation of his small child. These are reported cases of child abuse. There are many more never reported, but equally as serious. A physician revealed to me the large number of children who are brought to the emergency rooms of local hospitals in your city and mine. In many cases, guilty parents provide fanciful accounts of the child falling from his high chair or stumbling over a toy and striking his head. Altogether too frequently, it is discovered that the parent was the abuser and the innocent child the victim. Shame on the perpetrators of such vile deeds. God will hold such strictly accountable for their actions. President Ezra Taft Benson is one who exemplifies a true love for these little ones. To see the tiny tots gather at his side extend a small hand to be held in his, or to kiss his cheek 
demonstrates the love adults should have for these children. No one in the presence of President Benson refers to a child as a kid. His correction for such a remark is sure and to the point. A visiting ambassador from another nation errantly made this slip. He was corrected with love. When we realize just how precious children are, we will not find it difficult to follow the pattern of the Master in our association with them. Not long ago, a sweet scene took place at the Salt Lake Temple. Children who had been ever so tenderly cared for by faithful temple workers in the nursery were now leaving the temple in the arms of their mothers and fathers. One child turned to the lovely women who had been so kind to them and with a wave of her arm spoke the feelings of her heart as she exclaimed, Good night, angels. <laughs> the poet described a child so recently with its heavenly father as a sweet new blossom of humanity, fresh fallen from God's own home to flower on earth. Who among us has not praised God and marveled at his powers when an infant is held in one's arms? That tiny hand, so small yet so perfect, instantly becomes the topic of conversation. No one can resist placing his little finger in the clutching hand of an infant. A smile comes to the lips, a certain glow to the eyes, and one appreciates the tender feelings which prompted the poet to pen the lines. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life star, hath had elsewhere its setting, and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory. Do we come from God, who is our home? When the disciples of Jesus attempted to restrain the children from approaching the Lord, he declared, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. What a magnificent pattern for us to follow. My heart burned warmly within me when the First Presidency approved the allocation of a substantial sum from your special fast offering contributions to join with those funds from Rotary International that polio vaccine might be provided and the children living in Kenya immunized against the vicious crippler and killer of children, polio. I thank God for the work of our doctors who leave for a time their own private practices and journey to distant lands to minister to children. Cleft palates and other deformities which would leave a child impaired physically and damaged psychologically are skillfully repaired. Despair yields to hope. Gratitude replaces grief. These children can now look in the mirror and marvel at a miracle in their own lives. In a recent meeting, I told of a dentist in my ward who each year visits the Philippine Islands to work his skills without compensation to provide corrective dentistry for children. Smiles are restored, spirits are lifted, and futures enhanced.
I did not know the daughter of this dentist was in the congregation to which I was speaking. And at the conclusion of my remark, she came forward and with a broad smile of proper pride said, You have been speaking of my father, how I love him, and what he is doing for children. In the faraway islands of the Pacific, hundreds who were near blind now see because a missionary said to his physician brother-in-law, Leave your wealthy clientele and the comforts of your palatial home and come to these special children of God who need your skills and need them now. The ophthalmologist responded without a backward glance. Today he comments quietly that this visit was the best service he ever rendered and the peace which came to his heart the greatest blessing in his entire life. Tears come easily to me when I read of a father who has donated one of his own kidneys in the hope that his son might have a more abundant life. I drop to my knees at night and add my prayer of faith in behalf of a mother in our community who journeyed to Chicago that she might provide part of her liver to her daughter in a delicate and potentially life-threatening surgery. She who already had gone down into the valley of the shadow of death to bring forth this child into mortality again put her hand in the hand of God and placed her life in jeopardy for her child. Never a complaint, but ever a willing heart and a prayer of faith. Elder Russell M. Nelson upon returning from Romania, shared with us the pitiable plight of orphan children in that land, perhaps 30,000 children in Bucharest alone. He visited one such orphanage and arranged that the Church might provide vaccine, medical dressings, and other urgently needed supplies. Certain couples will be identified and called to fill special missions to these children. I personally can think of no more Christ-like service than to hold a motherless child in one's arms or to take a fatherless boy by the hand. We need not be called to missionary service, however, in order to bless the lives of children. Our opportunities are limitless. They are everywhere to be found, sometimes very close to home. Last summer I received a letter from a woman who has emerged from a long period of Church inactivity. She is ever so anxious for her husband, who as yet is not a member of the Church, to share the joy she now feels. She wrote of a trip which she, her husband, and their three sons made from the family home in California to grandmother's home in Idaho. While driving through Salt Lake City, they were attracted by the message on a billboard the message invited them to visit Temple Square. Bob, the non-member husband, made the suggestion that a visit might be pleasant. The family entered the visitor center, and Father took two sons up a ramp, a ramp one called the Ramp to Heaven. Mother and three-year-old Tyler were a bit behind the others, they having paused that they might see the beautiful paintings which adorned the walls. As they walked toward the magnificent sculpture of Torvaldson's Christus, tiny Tyler bolted from his mother and ran to the base of the Christus while exclaiming, It's Jesus! It's Jesus! 
As mother attempted to restrain her son, Tyler looked back toward her and his father and said, Don't worry. Don't worry. He likes children. (laughs) After departing the center and again making their way along the freeway toward grandmother's, Tyler moved to the front seat next to his father. Dad asked him what he liked best about their adventure on Temple Square. Tyler smiled up at him and said, Jesus. How do you know that Jesus loves you, Tyler? Tyler, with the most serious expression on his face, looked up at his father's eyes and answered, Dad, didn't you see his face? Nothing else needed to be said. As I read this account, I thought of the statement from the book of Isaiah, And a little child shall lead them. The words of a primary hymn express the feelings of a child's heart. Tell me the stories of Jesus I love to hear, things I would ask him to tell me if he were here, scenes by the wayside, tales of the sea, stories of Jesus. Tell them to me. First let me hear how the children stood around his knee, and I shall fancy his blessing resting on me, words full of kindness, deeds full of grace, all in the love light of Jesus' face. I know of no more touching passage in Scripture than the account of the Savior blessing the children as recorded in 3 Nephi. The Master spoke movingly to the vast multitude of men and women and children, then responding to their faith, and the desire that he tarry longer, he invited them to bring to him their lame, their blind, and their sick, that he might heal them. With joy they accepted his invitation. The record reveals that he did heal them, every one. There followed his mighty prayer to his Father, and the multitude bore record. The eye hath never seen, Neither hath the ear heard before so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. Concluding this magnificent event, Jesus wept, and he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And he spake unto the multitude and said unto them, Behold your little ones. And as they looked to behold, they cast their eyes toward heaven, and they saw the heavens open, and they saw angels descending out of heaven, and they came down and encircled these little ones. And the angels did minister unto them. Over and over in my mind I pondered the phrase, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. One who fulfilled in his life this admonition of the Savior was a missionary, Thomas Michael Wilson. He is the son of Willie and Julia Wilson, Route 2, Box 12, Lafayette, Alabama. Elder Wilson completed his earthly mission on January 13, 1990, when he was but a teenager and he and his family were not yet members of the Church. He was stricken with cancer, followed by painful radiation therapy, 
and then by blessed remission. This illness caused his family to realize that not only is life precious, but that it can also be brief. The family began to look to religion to help them through this time of tribulation. Subsequently, they were introduced to the Church and baptized. After accepting the gospel, young Brother Wilson yearned for the opportunity of being a missionary. A missionary call came for him to serve in the Utah Salt Lake City Mission. What a privilege to represent the family and the Lord as a missionary. Elder Wilson's missionary companions described his faith as like that of a child, unquestioning, undeviating, unyielding. He was an example to all. After 11 months, illness returned. Bone cancer now required the amputation of his arm and shoulder, yet he persisted in his missionary labors. Elder Wilson's courage and consuming desire to remain on his mission so touched his non-member father that he investigated the teachings of the Church and also became a member. An anonymous caller brought to my attention Elder Wilson's plight. She said she didn't want to leave her name and indicated she'd never before called a general authority. However, she said, you don't often meet someone of the caliber of Elder Wilson. I learned that an investigator whom Elder Wilson had taught was baptized at the baptistry here on Temple Square, but then wanted to be confirmed by Elder Wilson, whom she respected so much. She, with a few others, journeyed to Elder Wilson's bedside in the hospital. There, with his remaining hand resting upon her head, Elder Wilson confirmed her a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Elder Wilson continued month after month his precious but painful service as a missionary. Blessings were given. Prayers were offered. The spirit of his fellow missionaries soared. Their hearts were full. They lived closer to God. Elder Wilson's physical condition deteriorated. The end, it drew near. He was to return home, but he asked to serve just one additional month. And what a month that was. Like a child trusting implicitly its parents, Elder Wilson put his trust in God. He whom Thomas Michael Wilson silently trusted opened the windows of heaven and abundantly blessed him. His parents, Willie and Julia Wilson, and his brother Tony, came to Salt Lake City to help their son and their brother home to Alabama. However, there was yet a prayed-for, a yearned-for blessing to be bestowed. The family invited me to come with them to the Jordan River Temple, where those sacred ordinances which bind families for eternity as well as for time were performed. I said goodbye to the Wilson family. I can see Elder Wilson yet as he thanked me for being with him and his loved ones. He said, It doesn't matter what happens to us in this life as long as we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and live it. What courage! What confidence! What love! The Wilson family made the long trek home to Lafayette, where Elder Thomas Michael Wilson slipped from here to eternity. President Kevin K. Meadows, Elder Wilson's branch president, presided at the funeral services. The words of his subsequent letter to me I share with you today.
He wrote, On the day of the funeral, I took the family aside and expressed to them, President Monson, the sentiments you sent to me. I reminded them of what Elder Wilson had told you that day in the temple, that it didn't matter whether he taught the gospel on this side or the other side of the veil, so long as he could teach the gospel. I gave to them the inspiration you provided from the writings of President Joseph F. Smith that Elder Wilson had completed his earthly mission and that he, as all faithful elders in this dispensation, when they depart from mortal life, continue their labors in the preaching of the gospel of repentance and redemption through the sacrifice of the only begotten Son of God among those who are in darkness and under the bondage of sin in the great world of the spirits of the dead. He continued, The Spirit bore record that this was the case. Elder Thomas Michael Wilson was buried with his missionary name tag in place. When Elder Wilson's mother and his father visit that rural cemetery, and place flowers of remembrance on the grave of their son. I feel certain they will remember the day he was born, the pride they felt, and the genuine joy that was theirs. This tiny child they will remember became the mighty man who later brought to them the opportunity to achieve celestial glory. Perhaps on these pilgrimages, when emotions are close to the surface, and tears cannot be restrained, they will again thank God for their missionary son who never, never lost the faith of a child. And then they will ponder deep within their hearts the Master's words, and a little child shall lead them. Peace will be their blessing, and it will be our blessing also as we remember and follow the Prince of Peace, that we may do so, is my sincere prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brethren, I commend to you that which we've heard from those who have spoken to us this evening. We receive much of counsel and inspiration applicable to both men and boys. On a number of occasions in years past, I have directed my remarks in these priesthood meetings to those of the Aaronic Priesthood. This evening, if they will excuse me, I have chosen to address the men with the hope that there may be some long-term value for the young men. I have in my pocket two credit cards. Most of you are familiar with these. The first is a bank credit card. It permits me to secure merchandise on credit and then pay for my purchases at one time. It is a valuable thing and something to be safeguarded. If, if stolen and dishonestly used, it could cause me great loss and perhaps considerable embarrassment. In accepting it from my bank, I enter into a contract and become bound by obligations and agreements. In accepting the card, I agree to meet the conditions under which it was issued. It is issued for one year only, 
and must be reissued each year if I am to enjoy the privileges afforded by it. It is not really mine. The bank retains ownership. If I fail in my required performance, then the bank may shut off the credit and repossess the card. The other card, which I have, is what we call a temple recommend. It represents a credit card with the Lord, making available to me many of His greatest gifts. The bank card is concerned with things of the world, the recommend with things of God. To secure a temple recommend, the receiver must also have demonstrated his eligibility, and that eligibility is based on personal worthiness. Once granted, it is not in place forever, but must be reissued each year. Furthermore, it is subject to forfeiture if the holder does anything which would disqualify him for its privileges. Eligibility for a temple recommend is not based on financial worth. That has nothing whatever to do with it. It is based on consistent personal behavior, on the goodness of one's life. It is not concerned with money matters, but rather with things of eternity. The bank card opens the door to financial credit. The temple recommend opens the door to the house of the Lord. It is concerned with entry into holy precincts to do sacred and divine work. I fear that some people are granted temple recommends before they are really prepared for them. I feel that sometimes we unduly rush people to the temple. Converts and those who have recently come into activity need a substantial measure of maturity in the Church. They need understanding of the grand concepts of the eternal gospel. They need to have demonstrated over a period of time their capacity to discipline their lives in such a way as to be worthy to enter the house of the Lord, for the obligations there assumed are eternal. For this reason, many years ago, the First Presidency determined that a convert to the Church should wait a year following baptism before going to the house of the Lord. It was the expectation that during that year he or she would have grown in understanding as well as in capacity to exercise that measure of self-discipline which would result in personal worthiness. In 1833, the Lord revealed the following to the Prophet Joseph, Verily I say unto you that it is my will that a house should be built unto me for the salvation of Zion. And inasmuch as my people build a house unto me in the name of the Lord, and do not suffer any unclean thing to come into it, that it may not be defiled, my glory shall rest upon it. Yea, and my presence shall be there, for I will come into it, and all the pure in heart that shall come into it shall see God. But if it be defiled, I will not come into it, and my glory shall not be there, for I will not come into unholy temples. This, I submit, is descriptive and definitive and forceful language from the Lord 
concerning His holy house. Each of our temples has on its face the statement, Holiness to the Lord, to which I should like to add the injunction, Keep His house holy. I submit that every man who holds the Melchizedek priesthood has an obligation to see that the house of the Lord is kept sacred and free of any defilement. This obligation rests primarily and inescapably upon the shoulders of bishops and state presidents. They become the judges of worthiness concerning those eligible to enter the temple. Additionally, each of us has an obligation, first as to his own personal worthiness, and secondly as to the worthiness of those whom he may encourage or assist in going to the house of the Lord. In earlier times, presidents of the Church felt so strongly about this matter that they required that the president of the Church himself personally sign each recommend. With the growth of the Church, that became impractical. I read to you a circular letter addressed to presidents of stakes and bishops of wards under date of November 10, 1891. Dear Brethren, It has been decided that it is no longer necessary for those going to the temple to attend to ordinances therein to send their recommends to President Woodruff to be by him endorsed. The signatures of the bishop and stake president will be all that is required. This being the decision, bishops of wards and presidents of stakes will see the increased necessity for care so that no unworthy person will be recommended for ordinances in the temple. Signed, your brethren, Wilfred Woodruff, George Q. Cannon, Joseph F. Smith, First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At that time, there were three operating temples in the Church—St. George, Manti, and Logan. The Salt Lake Temple had not yet been dedicated. We now have 43 operating temples. If in 1891 it became too burdensome for the President of the Church to endorse all temple recommends, Think of what the situation would be today. But regardless of the number or the circumstances, the issuance and signing of a temple recommend must never become a commonplace thing. This small document, simple in its appearance, certifies that the bearer has met certain precise and demanding qualifications and is eligible to enter the house of the Lord and there participate in the most sacred ordinances administered anywhere on earth. These ordinances are concerned not only with the things of life, but with the things of eternity. Only in the house of the Lord is the fullness of the everlasting priesthood exercised with authority reaching beyond the veil of death. Everything that occurs in the temple is eternal in its consequences. We there deal with matters of immortality, with things of eternity, with things of man and his relationship to his divine parent and his Redeemer. Hands must be clean and hearts must be pure, 
and thoughts concerned with the solemnities of eternity when in these sacred premises. Here is taught the great plan of man's eternal journey. Here solemnized covenants, sacred and everlasting. Entering the temple is a privilege to be earned and not a right that automatically goes with Church membership. How does one earn that privilege? By obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. As you know, it is expected that everyone who applies for a temple recommend will be asked certain specific questions to determine his or her worthiness. It goes without saying that there must be total honesty on the part of those who are interrogated. The questions are not to cause embarrassment and should not do so. Bishops are cautioned against indiscreetly prying into highly personal and sensitive matters. But at the same time, the bishop must be assured that the applicant is worthy to enter the house of the Lord. Some of these questions are specific in their nature. These concern such things as tithing and the word of wisdom. Of course one is expected to be a full tithe payer. The payment of tithing is simply a faithful response to a commandment of the Lord. It is a mark of obedience to the divine will. Furthermore, long observation has shown that the faithful and honest payment of tithing is an indicator of faithfulness in other matters. Is observance of the word of wisdom necessary? The brethren have long felt that it certainly must be. Observance of the word of wisdom is concerned with the care of one's body, which the Lord has assured is of itself a temple, a tabernacle of the Spirit. He has said, Yea, man is the tabernacle of God, even temple, and whatsoever temple is defiled, God shall destroy that temple. I recall a bishop telling me of a woman who came to get a recommend. When asked if she observed the word of wisdom, she said that she occasionally drank a cup of coffee. She said, Now, Bishop, you're not going to let that keep me from going to the temple, are you? To which he replied, Sister, surely you will not let a cup of coffee stand between you and the house of the Lord. Tithing and the word of wisdom deal with straightforward and easily comprehended things. There are other matters somewhat more subtle but of even greater importance. They concern our basic honesty, our basic integrity, the degree to which we accept and live the laws of God which are incorporated in the teachings of the Church. Do we sustain our local and general authorities? This is not concerned with an exercise in paying homage to those whom the Lord is called to preside. It is a basic question of recognition of the fact that God has called a prophet to stand at the head of his church, that he has called others to work with him on a general level, and that that which they espouse and teach comes of unitedly praying together pondering together, seeking the will of the Lord, receiving that will and following it. Likewise, 
Unless there is loyalty toward the bishop and state president on a local level, there will be an absence of harmony. There will be suspicion and hesitation to serve with fidelity. There will be that kind of division which is always destructive of faith. Let it ever be remembered that no president of this Church, no counselor in the presidency, no general authority, no member of a state presidency or of a bishopric or of an elders quorum presidency is there because he wished to be there and requested the privilege. Each is there because he was called of God by prophecy and by the laying out of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administering the ordinances thereof. Loyalty to leadership is a cardinal requirement of all who serve in the army of the Lord. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Unity is basic and essential, declared the Lord, except ye are one, ye are not mine. Failure to sustain those in authority is incompatible with service in the temple. Honesty with others, including obedience to constitutional law, is likewise a requirement. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, in honoring, obeying, and sustaining the law. Occasionally we receive letters from those who openly advocate opposition to the payment of taxes, complaining that their bishops and state presidents will not give them temple recommends because of their activities. Through the years of the history of this work, there have been occasions when the Church and its members have come up against the law of the land. In such times, we have taken a stand in the courts. In those instances where the courts have ruled against us, although the ruling was difficult to bear, we have accepted it and conformed to it. Obedience to law, when that law has been declared constitutional, is incumbent upon the Latter-day Saints and therefore becomes a standard of eligibility to enter the temples of the Church. In that general context, may I say that we have taken the position that fathers who fail to provide court-mandated support for their children cannot expect the privileges of the house of the Lord. The scriptures are straightforward in their declarations concerning the responsibility of fathers with reference to their children. When divorce occurs and bitterness grows as it usually does, some men will go to almost any end to escape provision for their care. Where such becomes a violation of that which has been ordered by a court of law, it becomes an act of contempt contrary to the doctrine and teaching of the Church. The temple recommend which you carry, if honestly obtained, is certification of your moral worthiness. It is inconceivable to think that a man who is a philanderer and unfaithful to his wife would consider himself eligible for the temple. It goes without saying that none such should be given a recommend. But there is another, less obvious group of whom I wish to speak. I have in my office a file of letters received from women who cry out over the treatment they receive from their husbands in their homes. 
They even tell of the activity of some of these men in church responsibilities. They even speak of these men holding temple recommends. And they speak of abuse both subtle and open. They tell of husbands who lose their tempers and shout at their wives and children. They tell of men who demand offensive, intimate relations. They tell of men who demean them and put them down, and of fathers who seem to know little of the meaning of patience and forbearance with reference to their children. Brethren, when the bishop interviews you for your temple recommend, he is not likely to get into these delicate and sensitive and personal things. You must judge within your heart whether you are guilty of any practice that is unholy, impure, or in any way evil before the Lord. What a unique and remarkable thing is a temple recommend. It is only a piece of paper with a name and signatures, but in reality it is a certificate that says the bearer is honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and that he or she believes in doing good to all, that if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, he or she seeks after such. Most important, and above all other qualifications, is the certain knowledge on the part of a recommend holder that God our Eternal Father lives, that Jesus Christ is the living Son of the living God, and that this is their sacred and divine work. Brethren, I believe that most who hold temple recommends meet all of the requirements. I regret to acknowledge, however, that there may be a few who do not and who should not enter the house of the Lord. I know it is difficult for a bishop to deny or recommend to someone who is in his ward and who may be on the borderline with reference to personal behavior. Such denial may be offensive to the applicant, but he or she should know that unless there is true worthiness, there will be no blessing gained and condemnation will fall upon the head of him, who, of him or her who unworthily crosses the threshold of the house of God. May I speak also of a matter pertinent to temples. I remind you of the absolute obligation to not discuss outside the temple that which occurs within the temple. Sacred matters deserve sacred consideration. We are under obligation, binding and serious, to not use temple language or speak of temple matters outside. I first went to the temple 57 years ago. It was different from any other experience I had had in the Church. A young man of my association went about the same time. Thereafter, he was wont to use phrases from the language of the temple in a frivolous way. It was offensive. It was a betrayal of a sacred trust. I have watched him through the years. Once faithful, 
He has drifted from all church activity and forsaken the faith of his fathers. I think that much of what has happened to him began with that small irreverential, irreverential thing that he did in trivializing language which is not trivial. Please, brethren, do not discuss outside of the temple that which occurs in the temple. While there, you are at liberty to do so. If you have questions, you may speak with the temple president or one of his counselors. But when you leave the doors of the house of the Lord, be true to a sacred trust, to speak not of that which is holy and sanctified, said the Lord. Remember that that which cometh from above is sacred and must be spoken with care and by constraint of the Spirit. And again, trifle not with sacred things. In closing, I repeat that this recommend which I have and which so many of you have is a precious and wonderful thing. It makes one eligible for an exclusive and remarkable privilege, the privilege of entering that house which says on its wall, Holiness to the Lord, the house of the Lord. Live worthy to serve in that house. Keep it holy. Do your part to keep from the Lord's house any unclean or defiling influence or person. Enjoy its beauty. Enjoy the wonder of the things that are spoken there, the beauty and the blessing of the ordinances there administered. To young men who are here who have not yet been to the temple, may I suggest that you take advantage of the opportunity of being baptized in behalf of the dead, and then let that sacred experience become an anchor to your lives that you so conduct yourselves at all times and in all circumstances so that at the proper time you may secure a special and restricted credit card with the Lord, even a recommend to His holy house, there to enjoy all of its blessings and privileges, I so pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.